Jeff Sessions is on a crusade against marijuana. He isn't the first. It started 70 years ago. 70 years of suppression of research because of one man on a tear. It's also a very important story for listeners to know how much danger can be brought about by one person in a very high office. That's part of what this story is about, John. Dr. Richard Miller talks with me about his latest book, Psychedelic Medicine, The Healing Powers of LSD, MDMA, Psilocybin, and Ayahuasca. Prior to LSD being illegal, there was all kinds of wonderful science going on about it. The English were doing experiments using LSD to treat alcoholism. There were experiments using LSD to treat convulsions. And there was a lot of good science going on, tremendous potential in these psychedelic medicines or psychoactive medicines that all got suppressed. It's time for Progressive Spirit. Don't go away. Progressive Spirit is produced every week. It couldn't happen without the financial support of my congregation, Southminster Presbyterian Church in Beaverton, Oregon. Southminster's website is www.southmin.org. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon for the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, as well as podcast. Show KBOO some love, won't you? KBOO.FM and click Donate. For the Pacifica Radio Network, PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit. ProgressiveSpirit.net. I'm John Schott. On January 1st, 2018, California joined the rest of the West Coast in regards to recreational marijuana. Weed is legal. At least at the state level. If Attorney General Jeff Sessions has his way, the feds could still crack down on legal dispensaries. Jeff Sessions is not the first to crusade against marijuana. It started over 70 years ago. And that's part of what my book is about in bringing this important information in psychedelic medicine to the public, because it's also a a wake-up call to the public about how much danger one person in a high office can do and how long it can last. So we've had 70 years of marijuana prohibition. Finally, on January 1st of this year, California has made legal the recreational use. That will open up marijuana. That in and of itself will open up the doors to all kinds of research, and we will find out what the health benefits of this cannabis, tetrahydrocannabinol, cannabidiol. We will find out what the real health benefits are. We'll also find out what the real health benefits aren't. The public has a right to know, and they'll find out. But again, it's a story about how much, how much, how much suppression and how much, how many problems, how much danger one man can cause in a high office. The public's got to keep that in mind at all time. That's Dr. Richard Miller. He's the author of Psychedelic Medicine: The Healing Powers of LSD, MDMA, psilocybin, and ayahuasca. I'm going to speak with Dr. Miller about what happens when medicines that can heal are transformed by zealous propagandists like Jeff Sessions into illegal drugs. Before we get there, we have to talk about net neutrality. According to Timothy Michael, net neutrality is the cause that underscores all other causes. Because if we lose the ability to communicate freely, we lose every other cause we believe in. This is Progressive Short, a five to seven minute news segment on News That Matters. December 15th, 2017 could mark the day that the Internet changed forever. I just encourage everybody to get active on this. This is going to affect them for many years to come. It's a major change to the way you will be accessing the Internet. You will no longer be accessing the Internet as you did in the past. It will be part of a package you buy from your cable television service in which you will be given a number of websites in which you can visit as a basic plan. And if you want to get more websites, then you have to pay a premium to get additional websites. And it may be that website owners will end up having to pay the ISPs to have their website actually accessible through their network. So this is really important. It's going to change the way we do everything. That's Timothy Michael. He's a web developer and an activist for the 9-11 Truth Action Project, 911tap.org. He spoke with me about net neutrality, what has happened, and what yet can be done. What happened exactly? 
What they decided was is that the uh, Title II of the Telecommunications Act of 1934 was too restrictive to be applied to the ISPs. So what they wanted to do was get them out from underneath that regulation of common carriers and put them on another legal footing uh, as information services, which was very light regulation. And in fact, the only thing they have to do if they want to throttle a website or block a website or anything is just simply make a statement that they have done so. There's no recourse legally for the FCC from this point forward to uh, tell the common carriers or tell the ISPs, which are common carriers, uh, that they have to allow the traffic to flow in a normal manner. And from this point on, they, they don't have to do that anymore. That's the difference between Title I and Title II. And that's really what the decision was made. The, type, the decision was to reclassify the Internet service providers, which provides all of our communications throughout the world now, as Title I information services. As information services, they're permitted to determine what information they're going to provide to their customer base and what information they don't have to provide to their customer base based on, on market analysis of what is going to earn them the, the highest profitability. We have to remember that everything goes over Internet protocol now and that the old plain old telephone service pot cables and the original uh, cable television coax cables that used to be strung on the telephone poles, they, don't, they no longer exist. Everything goes through fiber now, and both cable television and Internet traffic, and in fact your landline telephone service is multiplexed on the same fiber. That means that today the ISPs are the common carriers the Telecommunications Act of 1934 envisioned, and it's why they have to be regulated as Title II uh, common carriers and, and be uh, put under bright line regulation in order to be able to prevent them from taking advantage of their monopolistic uh, control over the Internet. ISPs can make decisions about what content we can view by limiting access to irritating activists. Beyond the market, yes, uh, they are, they're able to determine what information they provide their, their customers. They are information services now, and they are not a common carrier. They are not providing the links. They're actually in the market of providing information. So they determine what information they want to provide and what information they don't. So these companies are Comcast, AT&T, Verizon Chartered, CenturyLink, and, and a few uh, others. Uh, those are probably uh, constitute 90% of the market right there. And these rules give all of these companies a distinct advantage, not only over pricing, but also in the marketplace, because now they can provide their services, their video services, their uh, information services, their news services, whatever they want, and they don't have to provide uh, space for anybody else. Here's the hopeful news. Congress has 60 days from the date of the ruling to change this. So how's this done? Congress has 60 days to review the decision by the FCC, after which they're foreclosed from doing that. So I don't believe there is a bill right now in Congress. One needs to be uh, uh, put forth on the floor, and uh, there is one in the Senate. Uh, what I'd like to do is read what Ashley Boyd from Mozilla uh, wrote about what is before Congress. And this is what she said. Congress can reverse recently passed regulations under the terms of the Congressional Review Act, or CRA. Given the outcry from Republicans, Democrats, and everybody in between from all around the country and the enormous danger Pi's order poses to the Internet and its users, we think it's appropriate for Congress to invoke this tactic. The more members of Congress hear from you, their constituents, the more they'll want to join the amazing wave of opposition that's showing no signs of slowing. Chuck Schumer in the Senate has introduced uh, a bill uh, invoking the Congressional Review Act, and there have been several others that appear to be that are supporting net neutrality. In fact, they really support the opposite. So what people need to do when they call their Congress is not to say they want to support this bill or that bill. What they want to do is say that they want their congressmen to use the Congressional Review Act to introduce a bill for a majority vote to overturn the uh, recent uh, rules that the FCC has put in place regarding the rollback of net neutrality. 
That was Timothy Michael of the 9-11 Truth Action Project, 911tap.org. This is Progressive Short. Dr. Richard Miller has been a clinical psychologist for more than 50 years. He is host of the syndicated talk radio show, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. He has been on the faculty at the University of Michigan and Stanford University. He was an advisor on the President's Commission on Mental Health, a founding board member of the Gestalt Institute of San Francisco, and a member of the National Board of Directors for the Marijuana Policy Project. He's with me to discuss his latest book, Psychedelic Medicine, the healing powers of LSD, MDMA, psilocybin, and ayahuasca. Welcome to Progressive Spirit. Thank you, John. Thank you for having me here today. How did you come to write this book? This is a long story, and it starts many years ago. Uh, it starts with uh, Dr. Timothy Leary and Dr. Richard Albert being fired from Harvard, uh, in part because of their research uh, into psychedelic medicine. And I was teaching at the University of Michigan and psychology. And of course, uh, having colleagues at Harvard fired was a really big deal. Uh, in those days, we thought that if you did uh, honest research, you had a safe harbor at the university level. And so that caught my attention. And what is it that these men are getting? Uh, why are they getting fired? And what is, the, what is this material that they're uh, researching? So I read one of their books called uh, The Tibetan Book of the Dead. And in the book, they talk about how if you ingest a certain number of a certain kind of uh, morning glory seeds called heavenly blue or pearly gates, uh, you would have a full LSD psychedelic experience. So like a good young uh, researcher, I got together with a colleague and a couple of people to sit with us. And we ingested uh, 400 uh, morning glory seeds. Uh, we counted them, each seed, <laughs> as good scientists. And I had a phenomenal experience. I, I went into worlds that I had never experienced before. I seemed to go back in time. Uh, I saw the pyramids. And I had a, a sensation that all of human history is embedded in the DNA of every single one of us. And that all we need to do is look inside and we have the, the, and the answers to what we want to know are within. Well, that was the message that I got, uh, correctly or incorrectly. Uh, but it did set me on a path, which I believe to this day, which is that when something is going on in the, inside of us emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, the answers that we may be seeking are inside of us. We are taught to look for answers outside of us. We're taught to look to books, to look to, to gurus, to look to teachers, uh, to take drugs, to eat food, to take something from the outside in order to learn and have an effect on the inside. But what I learned from that experience was to go inside when I'm looking for answers about the inside. And that was a very powerful experience. I then had an experience sometime later, a friend came to, uh, to visit from Paris and he brought with him actual LSD from Sandoz and he gave me some. I took 250 uh, micrograms. Once again, I had a phenomenal experience. And this one, one might call a spiritual experience. Uh, as I sat learning from the first experience, instead of going outside, when I took this uh, 250 micrograms of LSD, instead of going outside and looking at the clouds, which are so beautiful, or looking at nature, I, I had the good sense, if I may say so, to keep my eyes closed for the entire uh, uh, experience. And once again, I had a phenomenal mystical experience. And uh, one of the takeaways from that experience was the realization that the planet that we live on is a living, breathing organism. 
prior to that, I just related to we live on this earth and it's a ball of dirt flying around in space. But I had this very deep realization that the earth itself is a living, breathing organism and that all of life on it, we are all part of that organism. We're not independent, separate things. We're all part of the of the organism itself. And I had this very strong feeling that the species known as human beings, that we call human beings rather, um, are all part of one big animal, that we're all cells in one big animal. And to a certain extent, whatever's going on with any human being in the world can be felt by every other human being in the world. Well, this was pretty far out stuff for a young guy and a young psychologist to be experiencing. And I, and I tucked it away and look forward to, to further uh, research and understanding and further experiences. But very quickly, uh, it became illegal. And then I started researching what was behind the illegality. And then I started researching what was behind marijuana being illegal. And I found out about what the first head of the Federal Narcotics Bureau in 1935, Harry Anslinger, what he did to this country. Uh, he was a racist and he went on the attack against marijuana. You probably know this. I'm sorry if I'm boring you, John. No, you're anticipating my next question. I wanted to talk about the politics of this. Yeah, well, what I discovered was that the that the the um, this man, the first chief of the Federal Narcotics Bureau, was a ardent racist bigot, and he believed thoroughly that black people were giving marijuana to white women in order to have sex with them. So he went on a campaign to prosecute those people. He also was against the Chinese uh, workers in, in, in California who used opium, and he went on a campaign against them. And then he went on a campaign against Mexicans, brown-skinned Mexicans, he called them, you know. He was a, a fascist bigot. He went after the famous singer Billie Holiday because she sang a song called Strange Fruit, which upset him because it was about heroin. She, he actually went to had agents go to her hospital bed at Bellevue Hospital in New York and handcuff her to her bed. So that was the that was the beginning. Of, of, of an anti-drug morality and ideology in this country. And it was, it's been very severe because of his high position. He was put in place by his wife's uncle, Andrew Mellon of the Mellon family, who was the secretary of the treasury at the time. And he then eventually representing the United States government, went to the United Nations on a campaign against marijuana to get other countries of the world to also make the substance illegal. And this just continued to snowball and snowball and snowball until they used the same kind of draconian mentality to make LSD illegal. Prior to LSD being illegal, there was all kinds of wonderful science going on about it. The English were doing experiments using LSD to treat alcoholism. There were experiments using LSD to treat convulsions. And there was a lot of good science going on, tremendous potential in these psychedelic medicines or psychoactive medicines that all got suppressed from the tentacles reaching out from this early uh, guy, this Harry Anslinger. I mean, when I was teaching at Michigan, John, a man went to jail for 10 years for having two marijuana joints in Ann Arbor. It, th this yeah. was in, in the late 60s. I mean, it was it was draconian, uh, ruining lives. And I, I watched it happening started, you know, way back then. And, uh, and I'm collecting information and so on. And then I got involved in my practice and um, and in teaching and, and, and research and time is going by. And then I started um, having therapy sessions. I've had a lot of therapy in my life with various uh, tribal elders. 
uh, to raise my consciousness and expand my consciousness. This one therapist, Dr. Robert Cantor in California, uh, I came to his office one day and he said, there's a medicine that I want you to try that I think will help in our therapy. And I said, okay. And he gave me uh, MDMA and he gave it to me at 9.15 in the morning. At about 10 o'clock, the medicine took effect and we had a, a, a tremendous therapy session for about two and a quarter hours. And then um, I, I left and was able to drive back to my office. And of course, my head is spinning. I'm thinking, my gosh, I just experienced a medicine. I went to my doctor's office in a three hour period. I took the medicine. I had the effect of the medicine. I had a fantastic two hour session and I'm already driving home. I mean, this is a huge breakthrough because the medicine had the effect of opening up my emotions and my heart in the most beautiful way. My defenses were down. I was able to talk easily about the deepest of topics. And I thought, this is the greatest thing since chopped liver. I mean, we, we've got something here that's going to really change the course of ther therapy in the country. Now, MDMA yes. is, is uh, the street name for that is ecstasy. Is that right? The street name for MDMA is ecstasy. The other street name is Molly. I went on to take a series of uh, sessions with him. During those sessions, he um, also administered the MDMA to me. So I was the, the beneficiary. This was in the early 80s, but it wasn't too long until MDMA was also, was also made illegal. I'm speaking with Dr. Richard uh, Lewis Miller. Uh, he's with me via Skype. We're talking about his book, Psychedelic Medicine, The Healing Powers of LSD, MDMA, Psilocybin, and Ayahuasca. And I want to get some dates down. You mentioned that LSD for a while uh, was was being, was being used and researched helpful. And that would be in the, in the 50s, right, and 60s. And then... Well, what was the and then the then it came out in what 1970 is that right with the Controlled Substance Act and can you tell me what happened to that and what's the effect of that well, act on on research? Okay. LSD was officially banned in the United States uh, in 1967. The year, so the summer of love. During the summer of love, it was officially banned, but in the 60s. There was a and 50s and 60s. There was a lot of research going on, both in both science as well as the United States government. Uh, many of your listeners have heard about Project uh, MK Ultra, which was the CIA 20-year research project into LSD. And this is a whole story uh, in and of itself, because the CIA gave uh, as part of their experiments, uh, it, by the way, that, that Project Ultra was referred to as the CIA mind control program. Uh, and, and, and MK Ultra was the code name. And um, they literally conducted hundreds of what are referred to as clandestine experiments, often on unwitting, unwitting U.S. citizens. They actually gave them LSD. For those of you who have ever taken uh, several hundred micrograms of LSD, it's, you know, it's almost unimaginable to spike somebody because the effect, if you didn't have any experiment, any experience with, with a psychedelic substance and you were spiked with a couple of hundred micrograms of LSD, you undoubtedly would think you're going crazy. That something just really bad had happened to your hardwiring, because although, although this this substance used properly can be a very effective medicine, it also can be a very destructive force if you give it to somebody in circumstances not only that aren't proper, but without their knowing, because it's like all of a sudden everything in your in your inner you can't function, and everything in your inner world is is going wild and you don't know what kind of visions you're having or what you're seeing so it was a really dangerous but let's not spend too much time on nk ultra your listeners can can look it up on google and read about it but uh, mk ultra u-l-t-r-a easy to find and uh and read about it went on by the way just to put it in context mk ultra went on 
roughly from 1953 until about 1973. It was a 20-year period of our government doing clandestine experimentation. Okay, so I'm back in my therapist's office, and, and he's giving me the MDMA, and I'm making great strides. And then I believe it was about 1985 that MDMA uh, became illegal. So we have a whole system going on here of making substances that have potential great benefit to human beings being made illegal one after the other. Marijuana, we're finding out now, of course, 70 years later, that there's huge potential benefit to marijuana. Uh, some of your listeners may have seen the documentary that was made by Sanjay Gupta. Uh, the, these parents from New Jersey had this baby that was having 300 convulsions, I believe, a week. And they, they brought the baby to, to Colorado, where the marijuana was legal, and administered uh, cannabidiol, CBD, the non-psychoactive uh, cannabis. And the convulsions dropped down to one. So Sanjay Gupta had a complete reversal and did that great documentary. I'm telling the story because it's a story about 70 years of suppression of research because of one man on a tear. It's also a very important story for listeners to know how much danger can be brought about by one person in a very high office. That's part of what this story is about, John. And that's part of what my book is about in bringing this important information in psychedelic medicine to the public, because it's also a, a wake-up call to the public about how much danger one person in a high office can do and how long it can last. So we've had 70 years of marijuana prohibition. Finally, on January 1st of this year, California has made legal the recreational use. That will open of marijuana. That in and of itself will open up the doors to all kinds of research, and we will find out what the health benefits of this cannabis, tetrahydrocannabinol, cannabidiol, we will find out what the real health benefits are. We'll also find out what the real health benefits aren't. The public has a right to know, and they'll find out. But again, it's a story about how much, how much, how much suppression and how much how many problems, how much danger one man can cause in a high office. The public's got to keep that in mind at all time. Liberty is not a given. Liberty is something that we have to continuously work towards and continuously keep our awareness up about. The same thing with LSD became illegal. It's still illegal. It came illegal, what did I say, in 1967? So we're talking 33, 43, 50 years, still illegal still very difficult for courageous scientists to do research on. I'm John Shuck. I'm speaking with Richard Miller about his book, Psychedelic Medicine, The Healing Powers of LSD, MDMA, Psilocybin, and Ayahuasca. This is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. We continue the conversation after the break. You're listening to the podcast version of Progressive Spirit. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podomatic, TuneIn, or whatever podcast app you use to listen and give Progressive Spirit five stars, won't you? Contact me through ProgressiveSpirit.net with your thoughts and ideas about the show, and be sure to share this podcast on your social media. Follow on Facebook and Twitter. The website, again, is ProgressiveSpirit.net. Richard Miller is my guest. You can hear him on his radio broadcast, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. We're talking about the politics of medicine. His important book is Psychedelic Medicine, The Healing Powers of LSD, MDMA, Psilocybin, and Ayahuasca. There are some who can do some research on LSD. Is that right? Correct. It's illegal to have it in your possession. It's illegal to sell it. It would be illegal for me as a psychologist to give it to a patient. It would be illegal for a physician to give it to a patient. And the, and the, the penalties are very severe. However, scientists in certain circumstances, such as Dave Nichols at the University of Indiana, who's in my book, Psychedelic Medicine, he just kept knocking on the door asking for permission, as did 
all the scientists who are in my book, Charles Grove, Dr. Charles Grove, Dr. Phil Wilson, Dr. Michael Midhoffer, uh, each of these people, Roland Griffiths at, um, at Johns Hopkins University, Dennis McKenna, each of these people, Stanislav Grof, I can go on, Dr. Julie Holland, each of these people kept knocking on the government's doors, days, weeks, months, years. The government did not make their research illegal. They just put obstacles in their way, making it so difficult to do the research that any academician, I mean, you, you want to get research done, and, and, and if it takes you years to get permission, it's very discouraging. And also, it isn't good for your career. It isn't good for your career at all to be known as a psychedelic researcher. It could be very harmful because there's such negative uh, morality and ideology about these substances. So, okay, I'm back. We're taking you back now to the early 80s, and my therapist is is using the MDMA. I'm having tremendous results. I'm so looking forward to seeing this used all over the country. And then I think it was July 1st uh, in 1985, it was banned. What were the reasons given for that? By the way, at the time, Congress passed a special law allowing the Drug Enforcement Agency to put an emergency ban on any drug it thought might be a danger to the public. So now we don't even have congressional oversight. We just have this agency. And this agency in and of itself is an anti-drug agency. And he gives them an emergency ban authorization. That's huge. So one agency can just say, okay, that substance, illegal, right now, banned. What was behind it? There's a combination. It's a good question, John. It's a very good question. What is behind it? Now, I told you about what was behind cannabis uh, prohibition. Yeah, one, one, the, one guy, really, who on, yeah, a, well, on a tear. It was, it was a guy who was a bigot who was, who, was, who was looking for a way to attack black people and Mexicans and Chinese people. Right. Because he was a moral bigot. Um, and LSD, that came out of hysteria coming out of the firing of Leary and Alpert at Harvard, and there was just mass hysteria and fear. So a lot of what's behind it is fear. Art Linkletter, I think, that was made it popular to the fear of that uh, with the death of his Art daughter. Art Linkletter came out with this story about, I think, his, thought his daughter jumped out of a window because she had LSD or some ridiculous story. Yeah. We don't have one case on record, according to the leading scientist in the United States on LSD, Dave Nichols. You can read about what he says in my book. We don't have one case of a person dying from taking LSD. Not one. That is very significant. But why was it banned? Well, in part because there was hysteria. There's also a fear on the part of certain segments of the leadership of the United States government there's a fear of the public waking up because if the public really huh. wakes up, you're not going to be able to sell them a tax bill that hurts them. You're not going to be able to sell the public a tax bill that helps the upper one percent or one tenth of one percent of the population who give money to lobby groups that give money to the politicians. It won't work if the public wakes up. And a substance that can wake up hundreds of thousands or millions of people is a very dangerous substance in their minds. Suppose these people all wake up. Suppose they start organizing. Suppose they no longer want to vote for, a, for something that's against their own selves. It would be very dangerous. Suppose they don't want to go along with a situation in which lobbyists offer government leaders congressmen, fancy meals, trips on planes, women, who knows what else, in order to get them to write bills that favor their business. Suppose the pu public wakes up to the fact that lobbying is really bribery with a sanitized name. And in many countries of the world, lobbying a politician with gifts is illegal. It's a felony. But in our country, it's allowed. And what happens, John, if the public wakes up to the fact that the Supreme Court's U Citizens United decision 
which allows corporations to give unlimited funds to people running for political office, what happens when the public wakes up to that and realizes that when you can be a large corporation and give unlimited funds to a politician running for office, you control that politician. So we have a double whammy going on in our country. A, people can lobby, which is a way of a fancy way, a sanitized way of saying buy a congressman's favors. B, corporations can give unlimited funds. So what an effect has happened here is we put a tremendous amount of America's government in the control of those who have the most money and can apply that money directly. And a substance, a very cheap substance, which may have the power to wake people up to what's going on, is a very dangerous substance. Where, where are pharmaceutical companies with this? Pharmaceutical companies are totally invested in selling products in the most reprehensible, reprehensible and dangerous way possible. They are caught up in materialistic profit and that is what they're interested in. So the, the pharmaceutical companies pay off high level doctors to increase the number of diagnostic categories in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the Bible of Diagnoses in the United States called the DSM. We're now on the DSM-5. And there is clear evidence that pharmaceutical companies have paid off high-level doctors, including professors at Harvard University, in order to add diagnoses, which the pharmaceutical companies can then create medicines for those diagnoses and thereby have more customers. And there's clear evidence of that. Anybody listening can check this all this out now because the internet is wonderful and has all this information on it. And and uh, and the, and the uh, prescriptions then often given for things like, well, let's say depression or anxiety may help, may not help, but uh, the ones that uh, the uh, medicines that have been made illegal, some of these psychedelics really have, have had research that they really do help in many ways, right? In better. You're definitely correct, John. For example, in my book, I've got Roland Griffiths, Dr. Roland Griffiths and Dr. Catherine McLean of Johns Hopkins University, who did an, an experiment. They pre-tested the subjects for depression. They administered one administration of psilocybin mushrooms. And one year later, they post-tested the same subjects. And there was still, still significant alleviation of the depression a year later from one administration. The pharmaceutical companies, they're selling the public SSRIs, abbreviated selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which have an effect on the neurotransmitter serotonin. You have to take their drug 365 days a year. Why would they want to be happy about a new medicine that you only have to take once and get a year's worth of effect. And not only that, the new medicine is a vegetable that you can grow in your own backyard or in your kitchen and cost nothing. Their SSRIs are an annuity to the pharmaceutical companies and they're making hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars off them. Witness pharmaceutical companies have done with OxyContin in the United States, creating an epidemic that's costing tens of thousands of lives by lying to Congress and the FDA and saying that this was not an addictive substance. Again, all this information is online. You can check it out. And of course, the effect, the, uh, the overall effects of a lot of these uh, uh, medicines that you mentioned are really kind of to numb us to give a, uh, the, the, a reverse of what you said earlier, as opposed to uh, some of the psychedelics, which can wake us up. Absolutely correct, John, to numb us. This is 1984 revisited. Dr. Richard Lewis Miller, my guest, uh, author of Psychedelic Medicine, The Healing Powers of LSD, MDMA, Psilocybin, and Ayahuasca. Um, 
and this illegality of these medicines, uh, the, the United States has put pressure on other countries of the world as well with this, right? So uh, are there any other countries in which uh, this kind of research is going on? First, let me validate the, the first half of your question, which is that have we put pressure on other countries as well? The answer is yes. I'll give you an example from my life. Some years ago, I went with Rick Doblin, Dr. Rick Doblin, the founder of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. I'm sure your listeners are aware. If not, please look it up. Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, very important research research group founded by Dr. Rick Doblin. I went with Rick, with Dr. Michael Mithoffer, who's done the uh, MDMA and post-traumatic stress disorder studies, uh, Dr. June Roos. Um, and a few others, and we went to Israel uh, and met with uh, with the government leaders uh, and their chief medical officers to talk about the use of MDMA with their post traumatic stress uh, uh, patients, because at the time they had so many people who were stressed out by seeing body parts fly around uh, as a result of terrorist activities. And what we were told and what I heard and what I heard from the chief justice of their Supreme Court personally, direct, face to face. Richard, we would love we would love to try this experimental medicine with our patients, but we can't do it because if we do it, the United States government will take sanctions against us. That's what we were told, John. So that's the answer Mm -hmm. to your question. The tentacles of Harry Anslinger going back to 1935 and then going to the United Nations to put pressure on countries around the world to make these substances illegal continues. That same misguided morality and ideology continues. And we continue to threaten governments around the world with sanctions if they don't follow our orders. This is all related to the war on drugs, right? It's all related to what was called the war on drugs. Again, a terrible, a terrible application of clever wording. A war on drugs would mean you go into a pharmaceutical company with a with a with a fire with a hose and you start killing drugs. Or you or you go with a, with a with a flamethrower or, or or an axe and you start hitting drugs. That's a war on drugs. When you go out in the fields and start cutting down cannabis and burning it, that's a war on drugs. But what we really have, John, is a war on people because it's the people who are put in jail. We've got millions of people, over a million people in jail for minor marijuana uh, offenses. And guess what the highest percentage of those people are? They're black Americans. Again, the descendants of that Harry Anslinger bigotry. It's easy for your listeners to find out. Just go on Google and check it out. What percentage of the prison population in the United States are there for marijuana offenses? And of those people, what percentage of them are black? It's horrendous. It's embarrassing. It's humiliating as an American citizen. We fought a civil war in 1865. This is 2017. And these people, our people, our people are being put away by the droves for for. For, for smoking or possessing a vegetable that comes out of the ground. Dr. Richard Lewis Miller, my guest, uh, Psychedelic Medicine, the Healing Powers of LSD, MDMA, Psilocybin, and Ayahuasca. Can you talk a little bit about the, the, the science behind um, these medicines? Perhaps it's different for each one. But in general, what do these psychedelic medicines do? Technically what they do, chemically what they do, is they affect the chemicals that transmit information in the little conductors, nerve pathways in the brain. So we refer to them as neurotransmitters, neurotransmitters. And by changing the uh, the chemicals in the brain, they bring on different experiences dependent upon what the particular substance is. Now, Amanda Fielding 
Countess Amanda Fielding of the Beckley Foundation in England did um, digital images of the brain, normal with nothing ingested, and the brain on LSD. And your listeners can find these digital images online. They were actually published in the New York Times, and they are very exciting because what they show, John, is that when the subject or the person takes LSD, very large areas of the brain that you can see look quiet and dormant under ordinary circumstances, very large areas of the brain are oxygenated or infused and are excited. What this indicates is that with this particular substance, LSD, parts of the brain that we don't ordinarily have access to, we are able to reach and access. This is very exciting. This is why we have the unusual experiences. This is why we seem to go into what feels like a different reality, but we're not really going into a different reality when we take this particular substance, LSD. What we're doing is accessing our own brain in ways that we're unable to ordinarily. And this, John, is gigantic. You know, you just mentioned Amanda Fielding because that was a quote I had from her book. I was very impressed. She, she said the impact of brain imaging and psychedelics for the study of consciousness is comparable to the impact of the telescope to astronomy and the microscope to biology. And my question was going to be, is this an exaggeration? Uh, and it seems to me maybe not. It's not only not an exaggeration, John, but in her modesty, it might be an understatement hmm. for the following reason. John, if you or I accidentally cut the back of our hand, let's say we walk by a protruding nail and just ripped the back of our hand, over a period of days, that wound would begin to heal. We all know that, correct? Right. But we as people, let's just make it personal, you and me, John, we don't believe when that wound is healing that we have volitional control. We don't believe that we look down at our hand and say, heal. We just go about our lives and the wound heals. Correct? Right. You agree with me there? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's out of our control. I mean, out of our it's conscious control. control. Okay. Let's take another step and say, however... It's happening, and it's not an outside force that's creating the healing. Would you, do you think an outside force is creating the healing on the back of your hand? No, I don't. Our, our body, our, it's our body. Yeah. It's, it's, but who is our body? Us. So in effect, we are healing ourselves. We are a self-healing organism. We're doing this outside of what we call volitional control. You and I, as we agreed a few minutes ago, don't look down and say, okay, hand, let's get it on now. Let's see. Uh, well, I want to see you heal. You got three and a half days to do it. No, we don't do that. We go about our lives, but we still are doing it. We're responsible for the healing. Well, suppose for a minute, John, that we were able or we become able to take volitional control of that healing. Suppose we're able to say, hey, since I'm doing it, you and I just agreed that we're doing it. It's not an outside force. Since I'm doing it, I want to figure out how to be actively involved in my consciousness in doing it. But how the heck do I do that? Well, suppose there's a medicine that I could take that'll allow me to teach myself how to take volitional control of healing. In comes psychedelic medicine. Suppose these medicines, and I think they will, offer us the key to volitional control of healing. 
Suppose these medicines offer us the key to how I can go inside with some kind of a kidney disorder and use the focus of my mind and what I call my inner television, which is what we see when we close our eyes, we see things. Suppose I could learn how to go to the back of my hand and be involved in that wound healing. Suppose I could learn how to go into my kidney and so maybe this psychedelic medicine, and I'm putting forth that it is the key to self-healing because it's the key to how to focus the mind in such a way as we become conscious of how we are healing. It's that, so sir, is why I think Amanda Feeling is not overstating what she's saying, and she may even be understating it. Some people might think I am overstating it in terms of what I just said, but I don't think so. And I think as this renaissance of psychedelic medicine continues, and as more courageous scientists, like the scientists in my book, Psychedelic Medicine, come to the fore, we're going to see experimentation in using these psychedelic medicines to focus the mind and more use our mind as the tool that it is. Dr. Richard Lewis Miller, uh, my guest, author of Psychedelic Medicine, The Healing Powers of LSD, MDMA, Psilocybin, and Ayahuasca. Uh, he's also uh, host of the syndicated talk radio show, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You can hear a lot more about this there. Well, just one final question within a minute. If people wanted to get involved uh, in making political change, uh, what are there some organizations that are leading the way here? I would say the first thing to do is to join the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies founded by Rick Doblin. For short, that uh, is MAPS. MAPS. All right. That's right. Dr. Miller, this was amazing. Uh, I very much appreciated uh, this, this conversation and, and your work. Psychedelic Medicine, the Healing Powers of LSD, MDMA, Psilocybin, and Ayahuasca. Time to wake up. Dr. Miller, thanks for being with me today. Oh, John, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Progressive Spirit is heard every week. On Progressive Spirit, you hear interviews with cutting-edge scholars, authors, and activists who have something to say about social justice, human flourishing, and things that matter. Progressive Spirit is formatted for radio and is distributed every week through the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the public radio exchange. You can also catch Progressive Spirit on your favorite podcast app. The website is progressivespirit.net. Follow also on Facebook and Twitter. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. I'm John Shuck. Be well. Be well.